If you ever read Elmbridge Lifestyle, that freebie magazine that drops through our doors once a month, you may have noticed this month that a 17-year-old from Isha, Will Pinney, has won the National Theatre's annual playwriting competition for 15 to 19-year-olds. The title of his play, Is There Wi-Fi in Heaven? (laughs) It's a catchy title, because whatever our beliefs, our ultimate destination is really important to us. We want to know in as much detail as possible. In a moment of idleness, whilst I was preparing this sermon, I googled, will my goldfish go to heaven? (laughs) Google listed 16.2 million results. (laughs) 16.2 million. Answers ranged from the bizarre to the ridiculous, with a smattering of Christian apologists thrown in for good measure. Now, I'm not going to um, quote any now. You can ask me afterwards. But I think it shows to serve that those um, big questions around what happens to us when we die are in everyone's mind somewhere, even if we don't talk about it directly. And it's much easier to joke about goldfish than it is to talk about our own final destination. And so with that background in mind, we come today to the last of our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, that summary of what Christians believe. Over the weeks, we've been taking it line by line, considering God the Father who made the world, of what Jesus did in the past, how he came into our our world as a baby, how he died on a cross, how he rose from the dead, of what he is doing in the present reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking forward to what Christians believe is going to happen in the future. We talked about the judgment of God, why it's necessary, how it will be fair, and how it is saving despite all of our shortcomings. And last week, we considered the resurrection of the body, turning to Paul's analogy of a seed dying, in order to produce a new plant, to help us to understand something utterly beyond our present experience. And today, we ask the question, what are we resurrected to as we come to that very last statement in the creed, I believe in life everlasting? Now, I wouldn't mind betting that if I asked you what single word you would associate with that statement in the creed, your answer would be heaven. And indeed, heaven is part of the riches of that simple statement. But everlasting life is much wider and richer than even the concept of heaven. It's about our world reborn, heaven and earth renewed It's about the final fulfillment of God's creative plan. If you think about the Genesis story as being one bookend, if you like, in our history, where God created heaven and earth, and when we disfigured his creation and our relationship with him through our actions, through our sin, then our passage in Revelation today is like the other bookend, where God finally restores Everything to himself. Heaven and earth renewed forever. 
These concepts are so big, it's difficult to get our heads around them. They're way outside our present experience. John, the writer of Revelation, needed to resort to picture language to describe the vision that God had given him. And those pictures of a new heaven and a new earth, they're full of Old Testament imagery. They would have stirred the hearts of his original readers, whose lives were steeped in Old Testament scriptures. However, they're less familiar to us. And so they need a little bit of unpacking in order to appreciate their significance and the splendor of John's writings. So today I'm going to unpack some of those images. I hope that they will indeed stir your hearts as they did John's original readers. And we're then going to consider how a belief in that glorious future hope can impact on our present lives here on this earth. If you'd like to follow the scripture passage, um, it's on page 1249 in your Bibles. Now, we're all familiar, perhaps too familiar, with the words of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we have in Revelation is a glimpse forwards into the distances of eternity when that prayer has been completely fulfilled, when heaven and earth have come together and God's reigning presence is at the centre of it all. This new world is recognisably a world still because John can describe it in terms of a new heaven and earth. But it's one that's radically renewed with everything under the dominion of God. Now, the picture language helps us here. John says that he didn't see a temple in verse 22 because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, to the Jews, the temple was of utmost importance because that was where they believed that God dwelled. That was where they could come closest to him. And so that was why it was so devastating for them when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. But the holy city that John describes, the new Jerusalem, that has no need of a temple because God is right there in the center. His glory reaches into every furthest part and fills it with light. God describes the throne of God as being in the city and the reign of God as being forever and ever. Here on earth, at this present time, God's kingdom on earth is only partially realized. You may well have heard people say we now, we live in the now and not yet of God's kingdom. I think that was something that Mike mentioned last week. But, Here in this passage, we're given a vision of how God's kingdom will be fully realized in eternity. Now, one of the direct consequences of the full realization of the reign of God is that evil will finally be defeated. There are other places in Revelation where this is described more fully, again, in highly poetic picture language, But there are inferences to this in our passage today. In the first verse of our passage today, John says, In the new earth, 
there is no longer any sea. Now, this might come as a bit of a disappointment to you. Um, you know, we Brits are an island nation, and the love of the sea is something that I think is probably deep in the hearts of most of us. But to first century Jews, the sea was to be feared. It symbolized all that was chaotic. It was where evil came from. And so no sea symbolized no evil. In God's renewed creation, there was no darkness. Again, a symbol of evil. The gates of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, are never shut, verse 25. There's nothing to fear. And so you don't need to defend yourself against anything or anyone. Verse 26 says, Nothing impure will ever enter the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful, evil, has finally been cast out. But the thing that I personally find most telling about this passage is not the physical description the picture language of the new heaven and the new earth, wonderful as that is. But it's the description of relationships restored. Relationships with God and with each other. In the temple in Jerusalem, the place where the Jews believed God dwelt, there was a curtain that separated off the Holy of Holies, the actual place where they thought God was, and no one was allowed to enter. No one could approach God directly. God is too holy, and we are too sinful. And the Old Testament's full of those sort of prohibitions. But when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Our sin no longer needed to separate us from God. In this passage in Revelation, we go a step further. There's no need of a temple at all. And instead, we have an image of God's throne. And those words, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. It's a picture of our ultimate relationship with God in eternity. God's name on our foreheads, picture language for our being made utterly his, made holy, and therefore being able to see God face to face. Paul expressed this hope in 1 Corinthians 13 at the end of the chapter when he said, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Those renewed relationships are not just between ourselves and God. They are with each other as well. The Bible begins with two individuals in a garden, and it ends with a city into which the glory and honour of the nations will be brought, in verse 26. Genesis begins with Adam and Eve's banishment from the garden, denied access to the fruit of the tree of life. Revelation ends with the tree of life bearing fruit for all and with leaves for the healing of the nations. 
that tree of life is sustained by the the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. Chapter 22 in the first verse. And I wonder whether John was thinking of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman by the well, which he recorded in his gospel. Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The language and the concepts we read here are amazing, aren't they? They're so much bigger than anything that we can imagine. They can really be quite hard to grasp. One thing that might help us is to think about what God's new creation is not. The the final fulfillment of God's kingdom is not a passive resting place, a sort of um, top-end retirement home. It's something very much more active and real. It's much more than an eternal church service. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) It's much more than Friends Reunited, if you can remember that website. It's much more real than our present world. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis, himself a poet, put it this way in his Christian allegory, The Chronicles of Narnia. He described our world, the old Narnia, as the shadow lands. In contrast, he describes the new Narnia, heaven, in this way. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet, at the same time, they were somehow different deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard, but very much would want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. If we even half grasp the reality of heaven and earth renewed, then it will change our perspective on the world that we inhabit now. If this world is the shadow land compared with the reality of the new creation, then we can hold much more lightly to the things of this world. After all, we know indisputably that one day we're going to leave it all behind. As Benjamin Franklin said, in this world nothing is certain except death and taxes. 
the security and statement of our possessions, all these things will be left behind. They won't be needed. It can change our perspective on the importance that we give them now. When loving relationships are broken with death, the pain of bereavement can sometimes be very hard to bear. And David and I have had personal experience of that recently with the death of David's sister and her husband. But in God's new creation, where the God of love reigns supreme, he will make all things new. And that includes our relationships, both with him and with each other. If we catch the vision that John is sharing with us in Revelation, it makes it easier to understand Paul writing in Philippians when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what should I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. As Lord Elton said in the recent debate on assisted dying in the House of Lords, I regard death not as a pit, but as a door, not as an end, but as a beginning of something far more glorious. I tell your lordships, those who will come to consider that in their closing days, that it is true and wonderful, and that you should seize hold of it and live more happily. There was a photo displayed in the Claygate Flower Show yesterday. I don't know whether any of you saw it. It depicted a sign saying, no exit from graveyard. And uh, it won the most humorous photo category, and I chuckled as I passed it. However, as a Christian, I beg to disagree with it. Paul's grasp of the riches of eternity with Christ changed the way that he lived in this world. It gave him the confidence to live for the gospel, whatever the cost. The better our appreciation of our place in God's fully realized kingdom, a kingdom that was inaugurated when Christ rose from the dead, then the more confident we will be in living today in the now and not yet of his kingdom today with all its anguish and its struggle. Because for now, we have work to do. We are a Sunday people called to live in a world of Fridays. And so as we pray, your kingdom come on earth, God calls us to work with him for the coming of his kingdom. And so we can go with confidence into the dark places of this world And we can bring God's light into the darkness. As we've unpacked that tiny phrase, life everlasting, the renewed heaven and earth as God had originally created it to be, I hope that you can see that it is more wonderful than anything that I can describe or that we can imagine. It's the coming home to what we were created for. I'm going to turn to C.S. Lewis once again as I end. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, as they arrive in the new Narnia, 
Lewis puts these words into the mouth of one of the book's characters. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. He neighed, come further up, come further in.